We've all heard about the nuclear football, the launch codes for nuclear war that are carried around in a briefcase behind the president wherever he goes. But what exactly is the nuclear football? The nuclear football is really a collection of binders, a collection of papers that lay out how nuclear war could unfold. And it's basically a menu of options that the president can flip through and look at. One of the military aides who used to be responsible for the football described it basically as a Denny's menu. You go through, you point at some pictures, and that's the type of nuclear war that you order. With a side order of fried everything, I'm sure. So when you hear things like that, you realize that you and me and everyone else are all in the exact same seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halady. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with author Garrett Graff about his book, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. And if you think that title packs a wallop, wait till you hear the rest of what he has to say. And we'll talk with Nancy Faust of Simply Info on TEPCO's new robot photos of melted debris at Fukushima Daiichi and what exactly those photos are showing us. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report on the latest problems with our crumbling fleet of U.S. nuclear reactors, news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than Anthony Scaramucci was able to convey in his whole 10 days as White House Communications Director. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday. August 1st, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The big news here in the States is that two new nukes are not going to happen. After working nine years to expand a nuclear power plant in South Carolina, the South Carolina Public Utility Authority, Santee Cooper, and South Carolina Electric and Gas, said on Monday, July 31st, they are pulling out of the $14 billion reactor project in Fairfield County in the wake of rising costs, falling demand for energy, construction delays, and the bankruptcy of lead contractor Westinghouse this past spring. SCENG said in a news release that a comprehensive review that began after Westinghouse filed for bankruptcy caused the company to conclude, quote, both units would be prohibitively expensive. 
Critics have blasted both power companies for building the reactors at ratepayer expense when it's questionable whether the energy from the two units will be needed anytime soon. SCENG was allowed to charge customers up front to finance the project, and that has so far led to nine rate increases. The average SCENG residential bill includes about 18% each month for the nuclear project, or about $27 every month. So far, ratepayers have paid about $1.4 billion towards the nuclear reactor construction effort. And now the question for ratepayers throughout South Carolina is, can the money be recovered? We'll have a feature on this on next week's show. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, announced late on Friday, July 28th, the preliminary results of the Unit 3 reactor muon scan at Fukushima Daiichi. According to TEPCO, no fuel was found in the reactor vessel. To understand what this story means, we spoke with Nancy Faust of Simply Info, where she is communications manager and a research team member. Simply Info holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster which gives her ultimate creds when it comes to discussing those recently released pictures from inside Unit 3 and what they really show. Nancy Faust, always a pleasure to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, glad to be here. TEPCO recently released new information on the status of the Unit 3 at Fukushima Daiichi. Tell us what that muon scan, first of all, what it is, and what it showed. A muon is a subatomic particle generated by cosmic rays. Muons are able to pass through matter. Muons also have a harder time passing through thick or dense materials. That's why they've used this technology to attempt to detect the nuclear fuel in the reactors at Fukushima. Nuclear fuel is extremely dense. This makes it so they can use a scanner. They have different types of scanners they've used, but the essence of the project is to try to see if they can image this fuel. And they've done it on existing reactors that have not melted down and had found they could successfully do this. And now this is the third time they've done this on a reactor at Fukushima. What they're scanning is the actual reactor vessel. This is the metal cylinder that holds the fuel core in the water. What they found at Unit 3 is there was no fuel of any significant size inside the reactor vessel. Now, that is different than the containment vessel, and that seems to cause some confusion. The containment vessel is the larger concrete and steel structure inside the building that's used to try to contain the reactor core if something should happen, if they should have a leak or supposedly keep it contained in a meltdown. They have not scanned the containment vessel with a muon scanner yet. They only looked at the reactor vessel. So it sounds like there's a chance that we will be finding some of that melted fuel inside the larger containment vessel. Yes, and that goes to the other work that they've done recently. Uh, in addition to the muon scan, they used a swimming ROV, it's a remote-operated vessel, a little robot, that they were able to put into the containment structure of Unit 3. Unit 3 has quite a bit of standing water inside the containment vessel, so they developed this little swimming robot like you'd see in some sort of undersea exploration. They put this into containment, 
and then looked under the reactor vessel to see if there was any fuel inside the containment vessel. They did find fuel under the containment vessel. They found residues of melted fuel, melted metals, uh, and some other things in there. What we don't know right now is the total volume of what they found. It has been postulated by some people within our community that the pictures that TEPCO is saying is showing fuel, the pictures taken by the swimming robot, are actually pictures of melted control rods, which melt at a lower temperature than the fuel rods would, and that they do not necessarily point to there being fuel in there. Can you comment on that or clear up any confusion there might be? Yeah, there are a couple of different types of known, they call it corium. It's the melted fuel mixed with pieces of the structure inside the reactor vessel. There's different kinds of metals. There's other different types of like wiring. Uh, there's the control rods and the materials those are made out of. And all of this, when a reactor core melts, it pulls all of those nearby structures in due to the high heat. And it will make these kind of coagulated mixtures of reactor fuel and different metals and other components that they'll find in these melted residues. From the previous reactor meltdowns and laboratory research, they have a pretty good idea of certain types of melted fuel materials and what they would look like. Some of what they found looks like what has been found in other meltdowns, like at Chernobyl. Some of it doesn't quite match anything that's known. So there are still some big questions of what happened with Unit 3, what melted and where. The video that TEPCO has released is very highly edited. It gives little, very up-close glimpses of some of these masses of melted fuel that they found underneath the reactor. But what it doesn't tell us is there's no panorama picture. There's no big view to tell, are these little deposits or close-ups of a big deposit. We really don't know at this point. There may have been melted control rods, but those are going to melt in with everything else. Now, TEPCO made a mention this morning that's new news. They said they don't think the bottom of the reactor vessel itself melted a hole in it. They think the gaskets that go around the control rods melted, making holes, which then makes the lower part of that reactor vessel like a big sieve. That's what it looked like in some of the pictures that I have seen. It looked like a, a, a small grid of holes going through, and that's what led certain people to believe that those were actually from the control rods as opposed to the fuel rods. Right. It may have been that those are the routes that the melted fuel and melted control rods took. But what is surprising is how intact the structure below the reactor vessel was that the bottom of those control rod structures were still intact, that they hadn't melted along with any of this. There is some damage they found in the pedestal, but it wasn't quite as bad as you would assume it would be if the entire reactor core had fallen into that area and then sat there. So is this good news, not good news, as though anything coming out of Fukushima Daiichi is actually good news? I don't know if it's necessarily good or bad news at this point, but it certainly narrows down the number of possibilities of what may have happened. So it's getting us closer to some clear answers. And one interesting thing about all of this, TEPCO has been very careful to not give too much information to the public. But at the same time, the groups that are charged with coming up with the technology to decommission the plant and try to get all that melted fuel out 
need that information to develop their plans. And by the end of the summer, they are required to have a concrete plan that will then go into development. So there's going to have to be some honesty at some point. And that's where we're getting to. Things are narrowing down and they're running out of ways to not talk about it. Nancy Faust of simplyinfo.org. And now, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound weak. Japan's agriculture ministry has stepped up efforts to certify more agricultural producers in preparation for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. The number of meals to be served for athletes and staff will likely exceed 15 million. But how safe can it be? A study of radiation contamination found in Kawauchi Village, some 30 kilometers or 18 miles from Fukushima Daiichi, show radiocesium in three mushroom types that were tested. Radiocesium concentrations as high as 5,600 becquerels per kilogram were detected in all 68 samples of hedgehog mushrooms. And cesium was found in all but one sample of the other two mushroom types that were tested. With radioactive hot particles found all over Japan, anyone planning to attend the 2020 Olympics and eat even certified food while there are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you are a compassionate person and you care about learning the truth about nuclear and getting nuclear news you can trust. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. News stories on a wide range of nuclear information that are verifiably sourced and checked, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on all aspects of the nuclear industry. But you know, in order to do so, we incur costs to keep the show going. And that's where we need some help. Please consider helping us out with a donation of any size. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. And if you want a simple, inexpensive way to support the show, we now have a big green Donate button, which allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. This is the same as what you would pay for a good cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista. So, hey, let's have a coffee date. You're buying. Buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee this month and every month. And know that whatever you can do to help keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and growing, I am deeply grateful for your support. Okay, fasten your seatbelts because this interview is quite the ride. Garrett Graff is an American journalist, former editor of Politico magazine, editor-in-chief of Washingtonian magazine in Washington, D.C., and an instructor at Georgetown University in the Master's in Professional Studies, Journalism, and Public Relations program. In 2005, he became the first blogger to ever get White House press credentials. He's been on a roll for a long time, but I don't know that he's ever going to beat this one. His latest book is Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Garrett Graff, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
What is your background and how long have you been a journalist? So I've covered national security in Washington for about a dozen years now. I started off actually covering the FBI and have sort of branched out from there and spend a lot of my time covering cybersecurity today. But this is a little bit, you know, this is a subject that I bumped up against uh, throughout my time in Washington. It's sort of just one of those things that you hear a lot about in the shadows, the idea that there's this secret plan for government officials to be evacuated, these secret facilities spread around Washington. And so I had talked to people who had been evacuated on 9-11, talked to people who had been part of these plans during the Bush and Obama years, and had always just been you know, vaguely interested in these plans. But then my curiosity got piqued when I found a government ID badge. I, actually, a colleague of mine found a government ID badge and brought it in to me that was clearly in a U.S. intelligence officer's badge. And he asked me, my colleague asked me to get it back to the badge holder. And I, uh, when I turned the badge over, found this set of evacuation instructions. And I started following the route on Google Maps and Google Satellite and could see it went out of Washington and out to West Virginia. And on the satellite, you could actually see it end at this bunker, this unmarked bunker in West Virginia, where this road went up a mountain, there was a guard shack, and a chain link fence, and then this road just disappeared into the side of the mountain. And I was like, wow, like this is one of the new facilities that have been created since 9-11. So your concept was that this was a new facility. How far back does this facility, which is Raven Rock, how far back does that go? The facility I discovered actually wasn't Raven Rock. It was a different one in West Virginia. But these facilities sort of date back to the beginning of the Cold War. I mean, right during the Truman and Eisenhower years, as the government first began to consider the implications of this arriving atomic technology and the idea that you could have an entire city wiped out in an instant. And so they began to build these facilities around Washington uh, and across the country. Ultimately, there were more than 100 of these bunkers just around Washington alone, bunkers and relocation facilities, and then also spread across the rest of the country. I mean, FEMA, which is the agency that runs these facilities and runs these bunkers, you know, they had regional bunkers in places like Bethel, Georgia, and Maynard, Massachusetts, and Denton, Texas. And AT&T, which was the agency, uh, the company that ran the communication systems for these bunkers and the post-apocalypse world, it had all of its own set of bunkers spread across the country where, quote-unquote, AT&T employees ran the government's continuity of government communication systems. Raven Rock was one of the facilities specifically marked for the president to go to. Give us a sense as to what it consisted of. It's almost mind-boggling in scale. I mean, so the three major bunkers that were built during the Cold War were Raven Rock in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia, and then Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And these facilities are 
truly hollowed out mountains that have been filled with small cities made up of freestanding buildings. They contain everything that you would expect in a small city. I mean, they've got their own fire departments, their own police departments, their own medical facilities, cafeterias, everything that you would need to support life underground for weeks or even a month or two at a time. And even whereas many of these facilities nationwide have been shut down in the 25 years since the end of the Cold War, the three biggest, Mount Weather, Raven Rock, and NORAD in Colorado Springs, they still operate. Uh, They're still being updated. They're still running 24 hours a day, still staffed 24 hours a day. Cheyenne Mountain actually has a Subway fast food franchise inside today that helps feed its workforce. So you can still get your $5 footlongs even after nuclear Armageddon. What a thing to be able to have after the apocalypse. Yes. It struck me as naive that the plan seemed to call for supplies that would last two weeks, three weeks, maybe four weeks, at most a few months. Do you actually think that they believe that that will be enough to weather the worst of the apocalypse before coming back up again? So the goal was effectively to protect against the initial blasts and then the peak of the fallout that was expected and calculated to last about two to three weeks. And that the hope and the expectation was that after two to three weeks, you know, the world wouldn't be normal on the outside by any stretch of the imagination, but that you would be able to at least venture outside and forage for food supplies and reactivate the gas stations and oil tankers and those types of things. Again, the word that comes to mind is naive because for this <laughs> for this show, we cover the effects of nuclear radiation and even so-called low-level radiation over the long run can be more devastating than that which comes from fallout from an initial nuclear blast. So there seems to be a hole in their thinking, if not many more than one, but we can get to some more of those. All of this is to guarantee what is called continuity of government, that our government officials survive and can reestablish the United States. Explain to us a bit about what continuity of government is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function. Continuity of government was the umbrella term used to describe a whole series of different plans through the Cold War and, and even to the present day. You can break them down into a couple of broad categories. The first are who would actually be in charge of the nuclear weapons and the nuclear arsenal as an attack unfolded, minute by minute, hour by hour. And so that's a whole series of plans to protect the president, to protect top advisors, to ensure communications systems operate through an enemy attack, and that that was, you know, an incredibly elaborate system at its peak during the Cold War. You had special designated floating White Houses, special Navy ships at sea that could have served as an emergency command post for the president. You had these massive bunkers uh, at Raven Rock at Mount Weather where the president and his cabinet could be evacuated. You had doomsday airplane, the airborne command post 747s that were known 
as the night watch planes, the presidential doomsday planes that were kept on constant alert in and around Washington through the Cold War. Those planes, by the way, still exist today, still sitting alert. Um, you know, as we are talking here, one of those presidential doomsday planes is on alert at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. It is fully staffed. Its engines are turning and it is ready to launch in just 15 minutes. Then you have a second sort of broad sweep of plans that deal with how the government would rebuild in the days, weeks, and months after an attack. And this is where I found sort of some of the strangest information of my research, which was the way that the government reimagined the post-apocalyptic analog of its peacetime government. And so the post office was the agency that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still left alive. The National Park Service was the agency that would have actually run the refugee camps because the expectation was the refugee camps could be largely set up on national parkland, which wouldn't be targeted by a nuclear attack. The Department of Agriculture was in charge of feeding Americans and devoted an incredible amount of energy to manufacturing millions upon millions of survival crackers, these little graham cracker-like wafers made by Nabisco and Kroger and other companies and stockpiled in fallout shelters around the country uh, in the event of nuclear war. And then, you know, these plans evolved and changed over the course of the Cold War. Dwight Eisenhower had this extensive plan to bring in private sector leaders who would be deputized by Eisenhower in advance to come in and nationalize entire industries. You know, you'd have one person in charge of manufacturing, one person in charge of housing, one person in charge of all wages and prices in the United States, one person in charge of all transportation in the United States. And that these figures, you know, walked around through the Eisenhower presidency with these doomsday emergency letters of authorization. No one knew who they were. No one knew that they had this special set of emergency powers in the event of an attack. And they would have just emerged and announced that they were in charge of the country afterwards. And even while we don't necessarily know that that plan has any modern analogs, many of these plans actually do. The updated sets of these plans today call for the post office to be the agency in charge of distributing medical countermeasures in the event of a public health pandemic or a biological or chemical attack on the United States, and that they have a whole plan at the post office where your friendly neighborhood postman or postwoman would be the person knocking on your door to give you the anthrax antidote or the Ebola vaccine. There are so many assumptions in that about the fact that we would just go back to living normally as opposed to the disruptive nature of all of this and how it would play out given human psychology. For example, there's no way to fit into this how malleable the survivors would be to someone they don't know stepping up to them and saying, oh, by the way, I'm in charge of this aspect of government now. 
And there's no saying that the sequestered government officials would actually follow the plans instead of perhaps there being a power grab by someone who wants to set himself up as dictator. How likely do you think these plans are to be followed should there be this catastrophic emergency? I think it's actually one of the great questions of this era and of these plans, which is the extent to which... I think the secrecy surrounding the plans might have actually undermined them at the moment of need. I certainly understand that there's a need for tactical secrecy. You know, uh, who would be evacuated where? Uh, what the specific communications capabilities are of specific vehicles or specific facilities. But there's this whole broad strategic level of these plans that was kept secret throughout the Cold War I think unnecessarily, in part because I do think that there would have been real questions about the legitimacy of these people, you know, announcing that they were in charge, announcing that they had this special set of powers. We know, for instance, that there were very expansive plans, probably actually versions of these plans that still exist today, that would have seen the suspension of civil liberties in the United States, the Declaration of Martial Law, the suspension of habeas corpus. We're familiar all with the presidential nuclear football, the emergency briefcase that follows him around. Most people don't know that through the Cold War, the U.S. Attorney General was followed around by a U.S. Attorney General's emergency briefcase that held executive orders pre-written policies, pre-written suspensions of civil liberties, and something and a document known as the Master Arrest Warrant, which would have allowed the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to round up more than 10,000 suspected subversives in the United States and hold them without charge, you know, without necessarily any proof or evidence of a crime. So it would be the United States, but not really. Yeah, and many of these plans, you sort of see a sense where the hope was, I think, to preserve the spirit of the Constitution without the letter of the Constitution. You know, that we would have three branches of government, but that they wouldn't look anything like the peacetime three branches of the government. From what we can sort of understand and glimpse of the way that these plans still exist today and would be utilized today... It seems pretty clear that there is some plan for something like a super-empowered rump Congress, where some group, perhaps as small as one to four members of Congress, would be deputized in an emergency to speak and work on behalf of the entire Congress, that there would be no you know, sort of fully operational House or Senate. You would just have a small number of people representing the legislative branch in discussions with the executive branch. That's almost as scary as the thought of having a nuclear weapon dropped on us. Yes, and I think that that's one of the challenges in this, is that, you know, these are very dire situations that would have, at least as the U.S. government envisioned it, incredibly dire consequences for the United States. Let's go back to the nuclear football, which you mentioned, which takes such a place in our thinking these days. What exactly does it consist of? And 
if the worst happens and there is a nuclear attack and the president is not available, who then controls the football? The nuclear football is in many ways much less exciting than popular culture holds it to be. The idea that there's some sort of iris scanner or even the, the simple idea of a you know red nuclear launch button is actually just a product of fiction. The nuclear football is really a collection of binders, a collection of papers that lay out how nuclear war could unfold. And it's basically a menu of options that the president can flip through and look at one of the military aides who used to be responsible for the football, described it basically as a Denny's menu. You go through, you point at some pictures, and that's the type of nuclear war that you order. And do you get refills if you get rid of something? Do you get get to have another nuclear bomb dropped? Just raises, <laughs> raises that image. Are there any checks and balances in place. I mean, popular culture has it that whoever is president is just three to four minutes away from being able to initiate a nuclear launch without having to get any kind of approvals, and there's no way that it can be stopped. Is that accurate? It's absolutely accurate. And as scary as that sounds, you have to think about the context in which these plans were developed, where... The idea was that you wanted to strip away anything that could slow down the process. The hope and expectation was that, you know, you might have only 15, 20 minutes to make a launch order and execute a launch order before the United States was hit. And so the hope was that the government would be able to execute a presidential launch order as quickly as possible without any checks and balances, because the expectation through the Cold War, again, was, frankly, that the person who was in charge of the nuclear weapons was the most sober, most thoughtful person in the realm of nuclear war. I'll let that one pass for now. (laughs) The only time the continuation of government plan was implemented was after 9-11, How did it play out, and how successful did it prove to be? So, as you said, 9-11 is the only time that we've really seen these plans put into action. Parts of the plans have been activated during previous emergencies, but to a certain extent on 9-11, you saw them put into full activation. Richard Clark, the National Security Council official at the White House who was in charge of this, you know, gave the activate cog order, the activate continuity of government. And you saw helicopters swoop in and evacuate congressional leaders from the west lawn of the Capitol, whisk them out to Mount Weather, the facility in Berryville, Virginia, where the president and others would likely go in the event of an emergency. The president himself in Sarasota, Florida, reading to that classroom of elementary school students, was evacuated to Air Force One and put aboard the plane and raced into the sky and held seven miles above the earth until the U.S. military and the U.S. Secret Service were confident that they understood what was unfolding that day. But for the most part, the plans didn't work. They weren't fast enough. They discovered 
that many of the communication systems didn't really function in the way that people had expected them to. The president was largely cut off from communication aboard Air Force One, and that the facilities, even when people were evacuated to them on 9-11, weren't really up to snuff. And so what you saw in the years after 9-11 was White House Chief of Staff Andy Card and Deputy White House Chief of Staff Joe Hagan, who was the White House official in charge of the operations of the plans. They spent you know, an enormous amount of time trying to update these facilities, update the communication systems, and really be in a position that they hope would be able to respond better in the years ahead. These days, with the so-called or assumed improvements in the system, how is it decided who gets to go, who has to stay behind? Where is that line drawn and who draws it? So a little bit of it is person by person. These were deeply secret plans during the Cold War. I mean, you wouldn't even necessarily know that officials in the next office might be part of these plans uh, and that you might not be. I tell the story in the book of Aaron Sorkin, the director, when he was researching what became the West Wing and the American president. He was having drinks with George Stephanopoulos, the White House communications director, and George Stephanopoulos showed him his evacuation pass. Well, when this was incorporated into a West Wing episode where Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff on the West Wing, gets one of these evacuation cards, on the set that day, Dee Dee Myers, who had been Stephanopoulos's White House press secretary, pulls Sorkin aside and says, you know, I don't think that this is that realistic because the, these cards don't exist. And Aaron Sorkin realized that she had never actually known that she wouldn't have been part of these plans. And somewhere that decision got made. Is there any way to know who makes them and is there a court of appeals on it? Uh, there's certainly no court of appeals. At each agency, they are able to select some set of their staff in key positions. Some of it shifts administration to administration. Some of it is set, basically, by people who are in specific jobs. You know, your senior leadership, the top national security and law enforcement officials in the United States, top intelligence officials, and so forth. And what accommodation, if any, is currently made for the wives and the children of those people who are evacuated? That's a great question, and it's something that has dogged these plans since the very beginning. In Operation Alert 1954, the first large-scale emergency evacuation, you had Eisenhower's cabinet evacuate to Mount Weather, along with all of their secretaries, and the wives of the cabinet stayed behind and spent uh, what one newspaper described as a very chilly afternoon playing cards together and realizing that their husbands did not intend to save them in the event of nuclear war. Well, throughout the Cold War, though, you actually had a lot of people who struggled with you know, what their duty to the country was versus the duty to their family. And Earl Warren, when he was Chief Justice and was given one of these evacuation passes, he asked where the one was for his wife, was told there wasn't one, and then promptly handed his pass back in and said, 
now you have room for another very important person in the United States, because I'm going to stick with Mrs. Warren. And good for him. Your book's subtitle, The Story of the U.S. Government's Secret Plan to Save Itself While the Rest of Us Die, almost sounds like the slug line for a horror movie. And indeed, it's about a horror. For those left on the surface, whether they have survived the direct attack or in other less populated places of the country that weren't attacked, what do you think it's going to look like? And have there been any viable plans for the rest of us, or are we truly on our own? So it depends a little bit on the scale of the incident, right? You know, part of these stories is the evolving technology revolution as these weapons get stronger. In the early days of the Cold War, the government really did have hope of being able to evacuate many of the cities, to be able to evacuate much of the civilian population or get them underground into fallout shelters. By the latter half of the Cold War and certainly the 1980s, weapons were too plentiful and too powerful and the plans were effectively just save a small number of government officials and hope for the best. But even under a worst-case scenario, you know, you would still have tens of millions of Americans who would survive at least the initial blast. I mean, as you said, there's all sorts of problems with fallout and long-term radiation afterwards. But the hope was that there, to have some government in place to protect those tens of millions of Americans afterwards. And some of this continues to the present day, in part because what you have today is a threat that relies a lot less on the extent to which, let's say, a rogue state or a terrorist group uh, attacks just Washington or just New York, that the idea of the government needing to be available and needing to be there for the rest of the country in the wake of a catastrophic attack on the Capitol is in some ways more present and important today than it ever was during the Cold War. Raven Rock is an extremely intense book. As I wrote to you when we were setting up this interview, it's not exactly light bedtime reading. How ha- no, it's not. How has it been received? The response to it has been wonderful. I mean, partly because this is an era of the Cold War that is largely forgotten today. I mean, much of the Cold War, just writ large, is forgotten today. And this is trying to recapture and re-explain this era. But at the same time, these plans are, I think, part of what makes this book fun is that everything that you could imagine the actual plans are wackier and crazier. You know, all of the satire and the fiction of the Cold War actually was unable to capture just how crazy these plans actually were. So you have in Dr. Strangelove, the classic Stanley Kubrick satire, where they are worrying about the mine shaft gap. Well, it turns out, as I found in my research, we actually did worry about the mine shaft gap during the Cold War, that you had the Boy Scouts sent out nationwide to mark and identify caves and abandoned mines that might be able to serve as fallout shelters for the population after nuclear war. I mean, it's just, it's incredible the amount of effort 
the amount of money and the amount of time that went into these plans. You lived with this book for how many years did it take for you to write it? It, it was a four-year project, start to finish. What did it take for you to write it? And even more importantly, what did it take out of you to write it? What's hard about writing this book is not understanding fully what you don't know. So you have a tremendous amount of information that has been declassified in recent years, which is how I was able to piece together much of the plans from the early Cold War. But at the same time, the modern plans are still locked away. We have glimpses of them. We can discern some of them from earlier plans that have been released. But it's hard to understand what the full picture of some of these plans are because they remain classified. Was there a moment in writing the book or in researching it where you suddenly were hit with the enormity of the story or made a discovery that was particularly shocking or impactful on you? Part of it is just understanding the extent to which we, and by we I mean the government, sort of thought through every level of these plans. And so not just who to protect, but what to protect. So this question of how you preserve America actually becomes a pretty existential question about what is America. At the National Archives, they sat down and decided that they would save the Declaration of Independence before they saved the Constitution. At the Library of Congress, they sat down and came up with evacuation plans for the Gettysburg Address and George Washington's military commission. And perhaps my favorite detail in the entire book was learning that through the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers at the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell into the mountains of Appalachia. And if they're park rangers, it would be interesting to know if they're still funded. <laughs> so if the unthinkable happens, and we find ourselves at the receiving end of nuclear warheads, would you want to be one of those people inside the bunkers who survives and then comes out to face whatever is afterwards? Or would you rather go in that first blast? I think that part of the question is the scale of the attack. In the modern world, it's entirely possible that you could have a small-scale nuclear incident that would be devastating to a city a couple of cities, or even a region, but that the rest of the country would be largely untouched. And I think what's hard is people don't want to think through their own mortality. They don't really like thinking through the answers to questions like that. And so that became a big part of why it was hard to maintain the readiness necessary for the civilian population during the Cold War. Because you might be tempted to build a fallout shelter during a particular crisis like the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the idea of keeping that stocked, of rotating the food, rotating the water, rotating the medical supplies, was more than most people wanted to handle because they don't want to devote two weekends a year to thinking about their own deaths in nuclear holocaust. And it sounds like that would include you as well. Exactly. <laughs> So has there been any outreach from Hollywood yet? Any movie sale or option? 
Well, I think we are working on a documentary about this, trying to bring it more into view and dive a little bit deeper into some of these plans. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? No, you have covered all of my favorite points in the book. I mean, I think that the the thing that just I came away from wowed by in the course of this was realizing just how extensive and redundant and secret all of these plans were for so much of the Cold War. And unfortunately, while we have no specifics on it, we can pretty well bet that it's even more redundant now because if the command comes to launch a nuclear weapon, it sounds like there is nothing that will stop this country from launching it, even if it's some private who's the last person left who can get to those codes and put them in. Absolutely. I mean, these plans were designed to ensure that there is always someone left in the United States ready to give the launch order. What a terrifying thought, and we'll leave you with that. Garrett Graff, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Author Garrett Graff. His book, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. By the way, Garrett did get that badge back to the person who lost it, and who, according to Garrett, seemed very happy to get back his entrance ticket to governmental protection in case of a nuclear attack. But then again, wouldn't you be happy about that, too? Activist shout-out! This week marks 72 years that have passed since the United States dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese citizens and cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's estimated that the bombs killed It is estimated that the bombs killed 210,000 people by the end of 1945 and over the years have ruined the health of many of the survivors. The average age of the hibakusha, or atomic bomb survivors, is now 80, and many of them are still suffering from terrible health issues. To commemorate the 72nd anniversary of Hiroshima, which is August 6th, and the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki on August 9, back in 1945, there will be events in various places around the country, notably in New York City, in front of the Consulate General of Japan, which is at 299 Park Avenue. In Pasadena, California, on August 5th, there will be a showing of Dr. Strangelove and a discussion about nuclear weapons and what we can do about them, sponsored by Planned Parenthood. On Sunday, August 6th, there will be an event in San Luis Obispo, California, sponsored by Mothers for Peace. It will take place from 6.30 to 8 in the evening. I know that there are other events taking place around the country, and we'll get to some of the things you can be doing on your own, even if you don't have an event to go to, in just a moment. Here's today's final thought, and it comes down to a word. Wargasm. That's a word I came across in a Facebook post, and it seems a perfect term to represent the ongoing fascination with and insistence upon nuclear weapons. Our government here in the United States spends billions of dollars every year to maintain not only our nuclear defense triad, warhead-carrying missiles, bombers, and trident submarines, but also, as you heard on this show, 
a real bug-out bag of massive proportions to save the very power elite that got us into nuclear war in the first place. The concepts of disarmament, reducing arsenals, taking down the stockpile, even, dare I say it, peace, never seems to be an option to the thinking of the nuclear warriors, be they in the White House, the Pentagon, or on the front lines. In this week's show alone, we've learned the nature of the nuclear football, a Denny's menu of hot, hot, hot selections, and reaffirmed the fact that there is no check or balance to prevent our president from launching a nuclear war at any moment, and that the U.S. fleet commander in the Pacific has told the media that he would have no hesitation to launch a nuclear weapon once the president pushed the metaphoric button. Before we all fall for that sable-rattling hooey, this week of the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and then three days later Nagasaki, let's inject a bit of reality, shall we? I ask you to do two things. The first is go to NukeMap. You can just Google NukeMap, N-U-K-E-M-A-P, and then click on it. It's got a longer URL, but don't worry about that. Once you're there, to see what a nuclear bomb would do to your neighborhood, just enter your location and push go. A map of your area will show up. To select your bomb, a Denny's menu of your very own will drop down from the menu. Click on it and select Little Boy, the Hiroshima bomb. Make certain to check the boxes for casualties and radioactive fallout. Then click on detonate. When the numbers stop whirling, look at what a Hiroshima-sized bomb would do to your immediate world. Really think about it. Then realize that Hiroshima's bomb was a pipsqueak compared with the nuclear firepower we now possess. On the Hiroshima anniversary, August 6, take a minute to think of what those people went through after being subjected to what you just saw land on a map of your hometown. If you believe in prayer, do so. If you don't, send good thoughts and acknowledge the horrificness of what was done to a people in a place. Forget the justifications of politics. Politics can be forged or manipulated to make people do the will of those in charge. Instead, Think on the human level. Think of the humanity lost, the lives, the illnesses that were caused, the devastation. Think of the people. Then remember, on July 7 of this year, less than one month ago, the United Nations passed a resolution banning nuclear weapons. With 122 countries voting for this resolution, there should be no problem in getting the mandatory 50 countries, 5-0, to sign and ratify that treaty by September. Then it becomes international law, and the nuclear weapons states will be declared outlaw for keeping genuine weapons of mass destruction. Then, if you want to do something about it, go to don'tbankonthebomb.com and learn how you can go to your banking institution 
and convince them to divest from investments in all companies that support nuclear weapons manufacture. It's something that anyone can do, and it's an international campaign intended to starve the nuclear industry of its money from the grassroots up. The last thing this planet and its life forms can stand is a nuclear wargasm. It matters not whose bang is bigger than whose. We all, every one of us, lose if they get into that contest. So let's all get busy to make certain that what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki never happens again, ever, anywhere. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from bmj.com, fukuleaks.org, simplyinfo.org, Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie Gunderson, deunrenard.wordpress.com, nuclear-news.net, Reuters, utilitydive.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, reviewjournal.com, freebeacon.com, denver.cbslocal.com, nsn.com, MLive.com, thecanary.uk, globalcitizen.org, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, accessed with the guidance of Erica Gray of Sierra Club, Virginia, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers for your awareness, your support, and your love of this planet. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Be sure to stop by if you haven't been there before. Click on Like, Post, and Share. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as is humanly possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing any nuclear abolitionist wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.